Are there any Americans here? Who, if uh, they're just to provoke you, if you want to have further access to this room, you have to swear an official, how do you call it, affidavit statement that you will vote for Trump. <laughs> Listen, okay, this is just introductory chatter, but think I really think it's so suspicious, this liberal fear, my God, Trump, the end of the world, it will be the end. Listen, first, there is a mega achievement of Trump. Are you aware that he single-handedly ruined the Republican Party? <laughs> because the, this uh, big establishment wing, they are now all, you, you remember, the big strategist of freedom, uh, Donald Rumsfeld advisor, Paul Wolfowitz. And it, that, how is it called, that neocon, crystal something? I was told they both turned against uh, yeah, Trump. Yeah. Gently they are, yeah, 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 yeah. They both did it. Banks are against, and even the religious right. Okay, Trump is a total opportunist. Uh, um, but I think he's just a cheap guy, imp uh, opportunist, improvising. But uh, uh, it's clear also that he, if there is a place where Trump doesn't belong, it's Christian conservatives, my God. It's ridiculous, you know. So I think, from what I learned, there is now a core of Trump supporters who are really lower class, impoverished people, and who are simply uh, uh, pushed by a kind of anti-establishment rage, and there a new Bernie Sanders should intervene. They, the only, I literally mean it, the only path to a new left in the United States goes through some, at least, of the Trump uh, supporters. And uh, also, Listen, he's disgusting, believe it to me. I can do an analysis, why? but two times I sympathized with him. First, you remember when he supported, uh, when, sorry, Bernie Sanders supported Hillary, Trump said, you remember his reaction, it's like somebody from Occupy Wall Street supporting Lehman Brothers, I mean. <laughs> sorry, it was a nice statement. Then, although it was cheap, but you remember... I didn't watch all of it, but the details from the presidential, whatever, dialogue, confrontation, when Hillary was going on how she is worried what will happen if Trump wins, and Trump basically answered something like, yes, you will be in jail if I win. <laughs> I mean, and uh, a friend of mine who is some kind of this bullshit pseudo-science, semiotician of face language, etc., played slowly and... Uh, he claimed that you can see, if you enhance the image, that Hillary was a little bit shocked for a split of a second, you know. It, it wasn't. Uh, and, you know, like, I'm um, sorry if I repeat an old joke which I already used, but when people talk against Trump and so on, of course he is vulgar to the, to the end. But listen, you remember, I know I quoted it here, that Madeleine Albright statement when she was asked, is 100,000 people, children, that is this acceptable? When she said, yes, this is an acceptable price. Sorry, but for me, this is more obscene than all Trumpisms together. The last, then I give you the words, Trump did make quite a Lacanian achievement, this illusion of illusion, you know. Normal people, we have a problem, I am not yet there, probably I will be, that 
if you wear a wig, you try to make it look like real hair. But Trump achieved the opposite. He has real hair which looks like a wig, you know. A very Lacanian point, admit it, you know. Okay, stop, please. Thank you. As you see, Slavoj has uh, a lot to say to you, so I don't want to stand between him and you, but I just want to welcome him to his here for his uh, regular but the Institute of Masterclass. It's uh, good to have you here for three sessions this week. I also want to welcome uh, all of you who've come along. If you're not already on our mailing list, um, please do join to get involved in other such events, although none are probably quite like uh, this one or these ones. Um, Slavoj is going to speak for um, three sessions on the theme of Between Philosophy and Psychoanalysis. Which means anything about anything. anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ostensibly uh, about the way in which Lacan is stranded between and against um, these themes, but I suppose in many ways it also describes Slavoj Zizek's yeah. own uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. philosophical and psychoanalytical journey. So I shall hand over to him. He, he's will lecture, he will talk to you for, um, I don't know, maybe even up to 90 minutes or so, mm. but there will be time for discussion. Please, um, yes. Discussion. And yeah. this is not an empty op offer out of politeness, uh, <laughs> since it's difficult to stop me, so if there is some point that, uh, I'm, uh, I'm on purpose now using this terrible American political politically correct term, this triggering, you know, if it triggers a reaction in you. Please, I mean it literally, just stop me. Yeah, just, just really, interrupt me nicely, you don't have to shout and so on. Stop me and ask the question. No, it's okay. simple. Thanks very much. Thank you. Ah, just another thing to warrant. Yes? Ah. You are like a Lacanian analyst, you know. This is the record. I spoke with an old lady in France who told me... Yeah, beware the old ladies, indeed. <laughs> what are you? This is, you know, in, if you say this in the United States, you would be accused as politically incorrect. Ageism. They call it ageism. Sorry, please, I talk too much, please. I wanted to pick you up on Trump, because I, I entirely take the points that you are yeah. saying. Um, but it seems to me a very white perspective. Um, I really do not think that, that we are taking sufficient account of the number of dead black bodies that m might result. And really, is that acceptable? I totally... First, let me put it bluntly. Uh, Trump is a totally disgusting person, trash. He is the white trash. And, okay, let me improvise for five minutes. Uh, he's, even when he tries to be gentle and polite, he's even more vulgar. For example, I remember in one of his appearances, I just read about it, I don't lose time working, uh, he wanted to demonstrate how his wife, my own compatriot, Melania, who is <laughs> Slovene, you know. <laughs> this is why Trump is so popular in Slovenia, you know, like we Slovenes practically occupy the White House, if you mean. Uh, uh, he wanted to illustrate what a noble lady she is. And uh, I cannot use, you think I have no limits in vulgarity, but even I cannot use certain words. So he said publicly, 
on TV that she's such a nice lady that not even once in all their lives together he didn't hear her flatulence. No? But you know what's the problem? Like, it's vulgar even to, to, you know, you don't mention this. Like, you know, it's vulgar already to say this publicly, you know. Although that is my dream, you know, to enter a restaurant and to have no smoking, please, no flatulence, please, or whatever. And you would be shocked, it's vulgar. And she does this all the time. With Hillary, wasn't there a, a round table TV, whatever, where Hillary, probably for the toilet, had to leave for a minute? And then Trump commented it and said, where did she go now? It's disgusting, and so on. No, sorry, we all go to toilets, we shit. What's disgusting is to talk about it like that, you know. So that's the beauty. So no, and I know the story, what you were hinting at. It's not only uh, the blacks, it's that now, recently, also the darkest American civil society movements are getting mobilized for Trump. Open racist, white supremacists, and so on. It's, it's an entire... A movement which is exploding now. And it's good that you mention the black bodies. I totally agree with you here. You know why? You remember when a black guy shot a couple of policemen about two months ago. And there you had a clear split, even in very legalistic terms, you can put it, between progressive and reactionary. The reaction even of Donald Trump was, here the game stops. When people are attacking police, the very embodiment of law and order, the game is over. But I'm here on the black side absolutely, and for theoretical reasons, when they said, no, it's okay, we have this opposition. On the one hand, some furious black guy shoots some policemen. On the other hand, a policeman kills in a non-justified way a black guy. I think the second case is incomparably worse. Why? Because the first case was simply someone who doesn't represent the law doing, I admit it, something not nice, but so on. But you know, but when the police does that, it's a self-destruction of the law. You lose the basic trust into the law. That's the true horror. So I find totally hypocritical this idea, now it's over when blacks are shooting. No, the game is over when the police just becomes another gang. And this is a tendency that makes me really afraid. I will speak about this more this evening in South Bank. My good friend Alain Badiou just published a book which I love it. I almost cried, but I don't totally agree, but it's beautiful. La vraie vie, the true life. It's about, he's really getting old and in this patronizing attitude, he addresses the young generation and it's, you saw it, it's beautiful already. For example, it's written in this well-meant, hymnic, platonist, Platonist, uh, 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 Platonist, Maoist, celebrity. Like, can you imagine a book written today where the second chapter ends with this 
Maoist motto, long live our, our young boys and young girls, or what, you know. Like, it's incredible, but he has a wonderful, some wonderful motives there. Uh, uh, the first is, he almost, without knowing it, they don't like each other, uh, but you and uh, 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 Jameson, approaches the mode where he says that, although, of course, we are all anti-militarist and so on and so on, but he, nonetheless, he has a wonderful observation by you of how, what we are getting today with this global privatization. For example, he says, okay, we can be anti-militarist and whatever, but the abolishment of military conscription, it's a very ambiguous gesture. Because whatever you say, okay, we are anti-militarists and so on, but at least at some level, military are the point where we are all together at the same level. The price we are now paying, it's, let's be clear, that it's mercenaries who are fighting for us. So it's again, in a way, privatized. It's no longer your duty, which is why already Lenin drew attention to it. You remember October Revolution, Germany 1920. Many, many soldiers become revolutionary. No October Revolution without Aurora, uh, the, the sheep, without militaries on their side. And precisely that potentially progressive, egalitarian side of the army, uh, we are losing it today. But back to Badiou, it's a beautiful beginning uh, where he says that he wants just to go on with uh, 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 what from Socrates onwards is the 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 one definition of what is the task of a philosopher, to corrupt the youth. And then he goes wonderfully in what, uh, 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 in what way this should function today. He also, if I will not be able to read it, I will present it to you tomorrow. He, <coughs> he's a little bit too naive there, but it's the most beautiful, okay, a little bit male chauvinist from his position, celebration of women. He says that at least ontologically in our ideological space, man is usually perceived as the one, man stands for hierarchy authority, while a woman is always, even in this male chauvinist image of a woman, is always in a passage between the two. For example, you cannot pin her down. These are vulgar examples, but it's a mother and a whore this and whatever, it's always in passage. And then I almost cried when I read it. He said, this is why, uh, this is why if you, are, um, if you are still religious, you just have to take a good look at a woman. The very existence of a woman is a proof that God doesn't exist, you know. It's a kind of a totally naive, beautiful passage and so on. But more about but you again later or this evening, because <coughs> he does something which brings us back to Hillary, Trump and so on. Something wonderfully simple, but I think basically correct. He claims that today in this late capitalist consumerism uh, 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 society of permissivity, a new sexual couple is emerging. Men are more and more uh, 
uh, retarded adolescents that because of the uh, cancellation of military conscription, because also education, you know, uh, manhood was defined, and it's good that that manhood is over, by a certain uh, uh, right of initiation, maturation, like you become a man when? Usually in more conservative countries it was when you do your military service, then you are a man. Or when you marry, or when you get a permanent job, or, or at least when you finish your studies. But none of these functions. Men are more and more eternal adolescents, while, and it's very personal, tragic what he writes there, that a new figure of a woman, not a good image, uh, 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 like emancipatory figure of a woman is emerging, because his theory is that while men are pushed towards perpetual adolescence, women are more and more pushed towards premature, uh, uh, too early maturity. Already girls are treated like uh, uh, adult women. So that he claims that more and more the positions of social power are feminized, but not in this good sense, but in the sense that you include into the exercise of power a kind of fake femininity to make it even more efficient. For example, but you already spoke about this to me in a very, he says, because he has some sons adopted, he had some trouble with them, uh, delinquency and so on. And then he said it's becoming almost a classic scene for all those Arab immigrant boys, whatever, who gets prosecuted to court, that the face of power that you see is mostly women. A woman psychiatrist, a woman judge, you know, like they try to help you, they understand you, which makes it only worse for them. So I was thinking about it, isn't it this what we have at its purest now in the American election? Donald Trump is this eternal adolescent, cannot control himself, and Hillary is that type of a manipulating woman. And I was so glad when I met a guy who met a guy who met a guy who at the end uh, knows Bill and Hillary and told me that for long years this is how that horrible couple works, like you know. Hillary pulls the strings, manipulate and then, of course I'm making a caricature now, no, but that and then, if Bill annoys her, Bill, let, anno uh, let Monica suck you again, just give me alone, we are having serious business here, and so on. She is the force in the family. Now, uh, let me make it clear what I want to say here. I am not in any way uh, uh, making fun of feminine power. It's excellent whenever it happens. I even don't mind images of strong women. I think that men are really, maybe, like, if you want, really, I don't think Theresa May will be, but, you know, from Indira Gandhi to Margaret Thatcher, I like. Uh, my idea of power today is not the old fascist leader who shouts, you know, but a, a woman who speaks very nicely and so on, but cut the balls even more <laughs> efficiently. So I don't have any problem with this. All I'm, all I'm saying is that uh, there is something changing today 
very radically at this level, and we have to take it into account. Okay, enough of these stupid jokes. Now, just to tell you, my good friend, and good friend, it means I hate him. I hate him as much as I hate Alenka, Zupantrich, and others. Frank Ruda is here, and I invited him. He did a wonderful book, Abolishing Freedom, a plea for a contemporary use of fatalism. And I asked him, he graciously accepted, you will get, if you are a superficial guy and came here for my show, you will get it over one hour tomorrow. And then I asked him to present the line of argumentation briefly to make just a half an hour intervention tomorrow, because I am, here it's abolishing freedom, but you know, I don't know what I should add, buy four, you get one for three, or <laughs> whatever. Uh, no, because I more and more think that all this focus on freedom of choice and so on gave such a bad name to freedom that we have to rethink the notion and just replying frame to your book, I think more and more that we should turn around the standard idea of freedom of choice, which says that where we, that the past is the past, we cannot change it, while the future is open. You can do this, that, and so on. I'm tempted to say almost the opposite. The future is fixed, but we can change the past, maybe, through radical reinterpretation. So the only freedom we have is to change the past. I mean, of course, I'm not a magician, not in reality. So all these paradoxes, and it's a short book, I like books which are, I don't like my less than nothing, look, 100, 170 pages, you know, you can do it. So oh, sorry? Just a quick question on the, what you just talked about, the changing dynamics between uh, men and women. Yes, please. Um, I was wondering what the geography of this shift is, because, for example, I can't remember his name, but there's an anthropologist who's been spending time with people who have left uh, the West to go fight for ISIS. To go, sorry, where? To have left the West to go fight for ISIS. Yeah. And he makes come out of a similar argument, saying that they, they 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 want something that's bigger than them. They want this kind of rite of passage, this this right. Yeah, the, yeah. So I'm just wondering, there's there's that as a as a possibility to I think figures into this. But Absolutely. Question, even but sorry, to the the on, yeah. No, no, no. Even but you use as this example as this. He claims that that's why he claims that Western young guys traveling to Syria to join ISIS, it's basically, sociologically, almost the same phenomenon as youth gangs in LA and so on. A desperate attempt at a pseudo-initiation. And then, uh, so maybe, just to conclude this line, I think uh, the, an ideal politician today, let's put together three names, would be somebody called Hillary Duterte Trump. Duterte, you know, the president of uh, Philippines, who also, it's open, in a way there is almost something refreshing in that, changing the state power into another mob rule, just calling for direct murders and so on, killing and so on and so on. And you see, you have this tendency, even with Trump, you know, all these games he's playing of, I cannot tell you, basically, he's even flirting with the revolution. He's saying, I will admit the elections if I win, <laughs> you know. Listen, I'm not crazy here. I totally know that, uh, although I wonder if you concede one point to me. 
I still think that Trump is just an extremely vulgar opportunist guy who, as if by mistake, from time to time, did you notice this? He even says something almost, I wouldn't say I would fully agree with it, but you remember he said, why are we just antagonizing Russia? At some point he even says, shouldn't we show more understanding for Palestinians and so on and so on? No, I'm not saying he has a good heart. <laughs> I'm just saying he's a total disgusting opportunist. But still, as such, infinitely better than if you want horror is Ted Cruz. Or that other guy, Rick Santoro, or what? I doubt if they are human. If you ask me, they are aliens. <laughs> these, are, these are these true monstrous uh, religious conservatives where, you know, they talk in a certain almost automated way, no? So yes, I agree with you, but you know what's the problem here? I'm well aware of it. I'm now replying in a way to both of you. That I'm moving here in a very dangerous waters because these are phenomena. These are worth, we should openly confront them, but it's very, one must be very careful not to fall in a subtle way in some kind of a neoconservative trap, you know, that you say you see today because women are taking over that and then you are very close here to an ultra-conservative motive, which you find, for example, in German Romanticism, from Schelling to Richard Wagner operas, where women are celebrated insofar as they become in the family, back at home, the silent support. But the ultimate horror is a woman who oversteps her boundary and becomes a public person. That's the ultimate evil. Like, I don't know if I did it here, you find a wonderful English uh, translation free online, Friedrich Schiller, The Song of the Bell. It's an extraordinary, ultra-conservative piece, and Schiller, who is supposed to be the big poet of freedom, she gives in this song a kind of a genesis of French Revolution. And the idea is, as long as there was a proper family life, women were staying at home, keeping things in order, men were going out adventurous, but then women revolted against this role and everything went wrong, French Revolution and so on and so on. French Revolution is literally uh, uh, interpreted, read as the explosion of, uh, they, he calls them laughing hyenas, this crazy women. And then this is a motive which determines uh, the entire German conservative tradition, for example, I read this in a book which is a little bit outdated, but you get some data in it. Klaus Teveleit, Manner, Male Fantasies. He has many documents there about how at the end of the First World War, the obsession of German conservatives was crazy, seductive, promiscuous, brutal, violent Bolshevik women. The ultimate horror, and so on. So, uh, 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 what I'm saying is just this, that uh, what interests me with Trump is that, you know, it's chaos, but I'm a Maoist. I would say, heaven, under heaven there is disorder, good news, you know. I think that uh, just maybe there is a possibility of some new 
political dynamic which is opened up in this way because let's go back to Bernie Sanders. The true miracle for me of Bernie Sanders is that he didn't just mobilize academics, the usual progressive usual suspects, he also mobilized precisely those small vermont farmers and so on who are usually appropriated by the right-wing populism. That's, that's what we should do without doing this, you know, because what annoys me with much of contemporary left is that they all have this dream. For example, uh, my good friend otherwise, Udi Aloni, told me I was, it was a year ago, at some demonstration, small Palestinian village that Israeli army wanted to destroy uh, in front of, uh, uh, sorry, and there were in the same crowd, mixed, uh, Palestinian women, even conservative, totally veiled, and Israeli lesbians, and how it's a miracle. Yes, I told him, it's a miracle, but don't become too utopian, don't think that this is the beginning at what? In two years we will have half a million of Palestinian You know what I mean? Uh, this, the problem of bringing together these two, uh, these two, uh, these two orientations. On one hand, our Western struggle for sexual freedoms and so on and so on. On the other hand, this third world revolt of what Badiou uh, calls, I have some doubts about the term, although it's a nice one, nomadic proletarians. Let's not underestimate the trouble of really bringing these two together. It's not just patient propaganda and we will be all together. You know how many, for example, I was in Vancouver, quite by chance, when there was a, a big uh, parade, parade, LGBT and so on. And then I had some friends there who immediately informed me. There were so many conflicts, all the political radicals, some black organizations uh, boycotted it uh, and so on, because uh, they wanted to be in this Justin Trudeau way, so all-inclusive, that they invited the police, and the police grabbed the opportunity, because of course they did some shooting of the blacks there, you know. And this was an ideal way for the police, police to redeem themselves. You see, but we are progressive, but we are here, you know. And even, I think this was even the basic formula of Hillary Clinton, you know, to admit <coughs> all this LGBT, whatever you want, is for it just to obfuscate the, uh, the, economic, uh, the economic part. So I still, I don't understand, like I wrote about it, that's the problem. Why did Bernie Sanders, I understand Bernie Sanders that he didn't go against her. That, sorry, that, yes, but why did he have to go through that humiliating spectacle of publicly supporting her. You remember at the Democratic Convention, it was Bernie Sanders who proposed uh, acclamation. No. Why did he have to do that, my God? Couldn't he just keep a certain distance just to... Re okay, we are losing time, so comrades, let's go to work because, no, times are so bad now that the only thing that uh, remains to you is theory, I can tell you.
Listen, I'm a low-level guy. I like commercial blockbuster movies. And they are all so bad. Inferno is so... I stopped watching it after five minutes. Jack Reacher, did some of you see it? I like that sarcastic, brutal beginning, then I stopped watching it. You cannot even rely on Hollywood blockbusters. What remains for us? Lacan theory, I tell you this. Okay, so let's do... Uh, are you... Where is Madison? Ah, you are there, sorry. No, no, you still have time. I just was afraid that you will... <laughs> okay, so I will begin with something that I already used here, and then I will try, we will do a little bit of serious theory today. I will first like to explain, illustrate through some examples, the uh, Lacanian notion of plus de jouir, surplus enjoyment, because this, for Lacan himself, was his great discovery. I already quoted it here in his seminar from 73-74, Le non dupe air. Those who are not duped, those are really in the wrong. And of course, it's a pun with Le nom de Père, names of the father. Lacan asked himself in his own arrogant way, this is the question that he, Lacan, raises. I quote, what was it that Lacan, who is here present, invented? And then he answers, like that, to get things going, objet A, the object small a. Uh, so, not uh, desire is the desire of the other, the unconscious is structured like a language, not even, there is no sexual relationship. He focuses it on this notion of object A as surplus enjoyment, and what is so interesting is that, as I will maybe engage later in some friendly dialogue with him, Samo Tomšić in that book, The Capitalist Unconscious, demonstrates that... Uh, uh, this reactualization in the last 15 years of Lacan's teaching of object A is strictly indebted to Marx. It's the result of Lacan's reading of capital, of critique of political economy, like the empirical, at least, origin of the notion of mere lust, surplus enjoyment, plus de jouir is, is mere wert, surplus value. Uh, so what's the paradox of this notion? You must know it. It's that it's a surplus, but in a way, a surplus... Okay, I'll put it like this. The origin in psychoanalysis of this notion is the well-known fact that uh, Freud uses sometimes the term, uh, 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 the term uh, lust gewin, the profit of of uh, pleasure, oh, the profit, sorry, of lust is more enjoyment, the profit of enjoyment. How? You have a certain official goal, you want to eat, to make love, whatever, but the way you do it, the detour to doing it, brings an additional pleasure, so that this excess comes, it's not excess in the sense of, I got even more pleasure when I got the object. No, it's the pleasure that you got from the very way you approach an object, even more, here we get the paradox, it's the pleasure that you get from even renouncing direct pleasure. For example, and it's 
really a sad example, if you ask me. Uh, a friend of mine who is now in the United States told me a weird story. Then I found some places where they confirm it on the web, and it's such a sad, tragic story, but good illustration of Lacan. He went to, how do you pronounce it correctly, Walmart, that mega... Yeah, 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 well, I knew I pronounced it. <laughs> and uh, when he exited the store, he found there just abandoned, where do you put the thing you want to buy, trolleys, or what, how do you call them? Cars. No, cars, whatever, full of stuff, but abandoned. And then he asked some personnel there what's going on, and he said that many people, not the lowest class, but the impoverished middle class, they don't have money to buy. So they go to the mega store and they, in a ritualized way, play the game of buying. They go around, fill it in, and they just leave it there and go out. You know, they try to get the pure surplus enjoyment, as it were, without... It, it's a beautiful, very tragic metaphor, I claim. Now I will give you another example. Now come the two clips. The third one will be, I hope, shocking for you. The second one, because if there is an agency which is surplus enjoyment embodied, it's, of course, bureaucracy. You know, all that we know about bureaucracy is this procrastination. The greatest scene in bureaucracy is if you just simply solve the problem. You must uh, procrastinate, create additional problems, and so on and so on. So, of course, I will show you first a short clip from what I consider one of the greatest British movies, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. It's the film's hero played by Jonathan Price, uh, walks along the corridors of a big uh, administration building and encounters a group of people Obviously, there is a main administrator, bureaucrat, and all people around him, they play this game of, please, sir, what should I do this, with this request, do that. And although they, they appear as if they are trying to act in an extremely efficient way, you know, do this, do that, but it's all utter nonsense game, totally inefficient in its very ultra Efficiency. I think this is a wonderful example of sur surplus enjoyment that is generated precisely by the total nonsense failure of any utilitarian efficiency. So let's do first the, this one. Let's put the voice. You see, when you have group enjoyment, crowd, crowd, this you will see it now at its absolutely purest. Yes, yes, yes. You 
Okay, we can stop it here. Let's now go to, to total war. Okay. So, uh, this would be like one figure of surplus enjoyment. But this was just, a, how do you call it, a foreplay. Because now comes the true horror, my favorite. And you know, whatever you are saying, I think this is one of the absolutely most efficient speeches, political speeches. I will just show you some clips, whatever I was able to find on, on YouTube. It's First, let me... No, no, stop it, no. For a second, I will just uh, explain it. This is, you know, after the Stalingrad defeat, where the mood in Germany was not exactly <laughs> the best, no? And then Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister, did something quite extraordinary. He gave a speech in big Berlin Hall, Sportspalast, where he mobilized the people. It was an incredibly efficient public gathering and speech, but listen to what he is saying. He is preaching just more suffering, more renunciation to enjoyment. He says, listen carefully, among other things he says, do you want a war so total that you cannot even imagine how total it will be? Do you want to work not 10, but 12, 14, 16 hours a day? And watch carefully the expression of faces, especially, I wasn't able to get any close-ups, but there are some photos. When Goebbels himself gets into this trance, it's not just aggressivity. His face becomes twisted in a certain disgusting passivity. He's so clearly enjoying itself. This is, at its purest, what Lacan calls uh, pleasure in pain. Surplus. Enjoyment. Okay, now comes the pleasure, at least for me. Es muss ganz zur Ausschöpfung gelangen, und zwar so schnell und so gründlich, als das organisatorisch und das überhaupt nur denkbar ist. Je mehr wir das Führerabend Kraft in die Hand geben, umso vernichtender wird dieser Schlag sein. Es ist also nicht mehr angebracht, unzeitgemäß in Friedensvorstellungen zu huldigen. Das deutsche Volk hat alle Veranlassungen, nur an Krieg zu denken. Das trägt nicht zur Verlängerung des Krieges, sondern nur zu seiner Beschleunigung bei. Der totalste und radikalste Krieg ist auf der Kürzeste. Ich würde behaupten, das deutsche Volk wehrt sich gegen die totalen Krieg. 
Okay, let's not exaggerate. Let's not give them too much pleasure because. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, Goebbels is a fascinating figure because all other big leaders like Himmler, especially Goering, they had this compromising, pragmatic attitude. For example, Goering already approached in the winter of '44 the Americans, can we make a, a partial peace? But Goebbels went to the end, and uh, if you want to see ideological madness at its purest, download the movie, you can get it now on, on, on whatever still functions. On I use now Pirate Bay because my beloved uh, 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 Torrent or whatever kick ass is out and so on. No? You can get it there. You remember uh, that it's the called Kohlberg. Uh, 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 it's a film, it's madness. It was shot in the fall of 44. And the, you know, what was in the fall of 44? I mean, Germany was losing and uh, Goebbels convinced Hitler to allow him to withdraw tens of thousands of soldiers from the front to play in the film. Uh, the military industry has to build old-fashioned guns, uh, uniforms, and so on. Kolberg, uh, now it's in uh, Poland, it's a small Baltic city which was under siege by Napoleon in Napoleonic Wars, and when it was almost destroyed, they didn't win, but because of some uh, peace between Napoleon and Prussia, whatever, they survived it. And he wanted to use this, obviously, as a metaphor, as a parallel, in a parallel to today's situation of how German people have to uh, endure and so on. But this madness that one big good film can save us, can turn around the war. And he took it so seriously. You can find, you can, it's quite interesting to see this film. I mean, it's an extremely well-made, it's White Harlan, the truly greatest uh, Nazi director and so on. So, again, uh, this speech, what was my point? It's that if you want to see, to grasp almost physically what Lacan means by jouissance, enjoyment, as opposed to pleasure, it's this. It's this crowd shouting and so on and so on. And I think this was quite a risky move. You know, I read somewhere in history of World War II that after Stalingrad defeat, there were some oscillations, more compromising people, Goering and so on. They said, let's not even announce clearly the defeat at Stalingrad. Let's play it down. And Goebbels has this idea. No, on the contrary. Let's paint it even darker than it was. Let's use the very bad news as a, as a tool. It's quite something. Okay, so I hope I got you here an idea of uh, surplus enjoyment. But yes, I, please. Because uh, you showed the video Brazil and then you showed uh, the, the speech and of course one's a movie and I'm just wondering if we were to take a, a go and take a, a look at the DMV or some bureaucratic office for an hour, if the the similar mechanism would be so obvious. So, what I, do you mean by by by? Uh, no, I. I mean like, like if I think about how I experience bureaucracy, or like the, yeah. in my department, we're always having another assessment, another audit, another so and so yeah. to be more efficient. Yeah, and yeah. So I think what you're saying is that there's a surplus enjoyment in that. 
But if I think about the mechanism of that, as opposed to what was going on in the video we just saw, it's... Which video? You mean the, the Brazil? Yeah. Brazil or Goebbels? Both. Uh, but but I... Is, is, is it a difference in kind or degree? No, degree. I claim it's a degree. I claim that even the most standard bureaucracy, all those rituals, postponements, you cannot really explain them through efficiency. There is a certain perverted enjoyment in inefficiency itself. That's why I didn't want to bother you. You should download it for free. Uh, you get it Brazil also. There is another wonderful scene when in the apartment of Jonathan Price, the hero, you remember something, water electricity breaks down. And then the official plumberers come. And of course, just take notes from They do nothing. And then Robert De Niro is there in a wonderful role. He breaks in in the evening and says, listen, I will do something totally illegal. I will just quickly fix it. No? It's the utmost thing. And he does it, and that's the origin of all the troubles. Because next day, the official plum plumberers came and said, oh, somebody was messing here. How dare you? And then the guy is arrested, or you know, all the nightmare comes. And I experienced this. I mean, I really think, you know what's the problem with bureaucracy? Uh, bureaucracy's first worry is not to solve the problem, but even to create the problems to justify its existence, you know. And you are caught into this circle. And there is some, uh, I don't think even, I don't think even uh, we, should, we should fight it. There is a solution that I found in a movie that I once succeeded in doing it. And I, I felt so well for days afterwards. Namely, uh, I have to go somewhere to fill in some, some bureaucratic bullshit, no? And uh, uh, the lady in, in some office in Ljubljana told me, sorry, it's okay, but now there is a new regulation, something like A22 forum, you don't have that, you know. And I bluffed it totally. I said, no, sorry, I have a friend, and he told me there is now a B13 regulation. And she was in a total panic. I succeeded so, so triumphantly, you know, that although I didn't achieve anything, but I felt so well it was worth doing it, you know. So again, what I'm, uh, what I'm saying is that this is, the, uh, this is why bureaucracy is for me precisely insofar as it goes into this madness. A purely erotic phenomenon. Erotic in the sense of eternal postponement and so on and so on. And I, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but I think I even already used maybe this story here. Like, let's say I'm impotent. A good psychiatrist will never give me this Buddhist bullshit, you know, like, just relax, don't think, just do it. No. The only approach, and to be a little bit almost obscenely open, which works, I can tell you, is bureaucratization. You are impotent, you cannot do it. Sit down with the lady or man or whomever, and each of you takes a piece of paper, and then you say, okay, let's establish a precise plan. 
I kiss you, I put the finger here, there, and then you get into these wonderful bureaucratic problems. No, said the lady, I want you to kiss me first there before you put the finger here. And then we debated this so much that at the end we said, I'm tired of this, let's just go and fuck it. It went, but you know, bureaucracy is something so... I will tell you another story that I used. I'm sorry if I repeat myself. The guy who lives not far from here, my good British friend, uh, Lacanian, half Lacanian, half Kleinian, I'm still a Stalinist to distinguish, <laughs> analyst Darian Leader. You see, that's bureaucracy in practice. He told me that one of his patients told him, made a wonderful, told him of a wonderful slip of tongue. He, his patient, not Darian Leader, wanted to seduce a lady so he took her into a nice hotel where first he wanted to take her out to nice dinner down in the restaurant and then, of course, up into a room. But he made uh, an embarrassing slip of tongue. When the two entered the restaurant, instead of saying a table, of, uh, a table for two, please, he said a room with a bed for two, please. <laughs> now... Here you see that Darian Leader is a good Lacanian. He told me it's totally wrong to read this sleep of tongue in this primitive pseudo-Freudian way, like, oh, for him eating was just a pretext, his mind was already on. No, it's the opposite. He was so afraid that he will enjoy too much what should have been only the preparatory step of eating, and then will be too fed up, too tired to do his duty, that it was a reminder to himself, this sleep. Don't get too involved in eating. Remember, your true duty is... You know, it was like, like the warning was, solve the problem, don't get involved in bureaucratic detours or whatever, you know. So, okay, let's go on from here. Next stop, step, sorry a little bit more theoretical, the status of this surplus of uh, object A causes many political problems. The usual figure of this excess is uh, what in politics it's usually referred to as the the uh, how do you usually call it, the wandering, uh, wandering excess. You know, the idea is, you find this in Badiou, in Ranciere, uh, and in, in, uh, in others. Uh, 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 the idea is that, okay, at a philosophical level, they say, there is always, in any field of symbolization, a certain excess, something that resists it, something that cannot be, in the Hegelian sense of Aufhebung, Aufgehoben, sublated, integrated into the system. Always the point, a point of failure. And the idea is that also in the social edifice, we have always some remainder, something that resists, a surplus. For example, uh, as Frank Ruda wrote a wonderful book on this, my God, he, uh, on the notion of rebel, pöbel in Hegel, as that part of the social edifice, which is precisely, as Ranciere put it, uh, and but you follow him here, la part du non part, the part of no part, 
something that is in the social edifice but with no proper place in it. And of course, we are all deeply into this logic. For example, today, no bad jokes, please, because I was attacked enough, although I will continue provoking. LGBT, transgender and so on. Obviously, their complaint is that they are a part of no part. They are obviously part of our sexuality, marginal as they are. And here I am a little bit evil, you know, but I meant it benevolently, extremely. You know that uh, how the big uh, Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street formula was we are 99%, no? Well, trans people's formula should rather have been we are the 1%, no? So there is also a good 1%, but okay, I will not go on to get <laughs> caught into the usual problem. What I want to say is that, so the idea is that we have a social body somehow structured according to certain principles, like in male chauvinist perspective, patriarchal principle with men, women, their own roles, and so on. And there are elements, parts, which don't fit it. And I'm here much more for transgender than, than for gay and lesbian. You know, because can you explain this to me? I'm asking you as a citizen a very frank question. I never got it how, and I'm here for transgender undermining the gender binary. Why is it that many gay and lesbian theoreticians emphasize how the gender binary should be undermined. But can you explain to me in what sense homosexuality undermines gender binary? The way I see it, it's fully in it. Male homosexuality means men do it with men and not with women. The space of gender binary is fully here. You just make the non-traditional choice, and I think, but we don't have time to go into this now, what Lacan does here is much more subversive than the usual list against gender byron, you know, there are 30, 40 sexes. Lacan totally confuses the categorization. Lacan says somewhere in one of his seminars, ironically, that he is totally for heterosexuality, but then he says something which is beautiful. He says, but the only true heterosexuals are lesbians. The standard heterosexuals are, at least from the male side, uh, it's just a subspecies of homosexuality. And I found, I used it in some of my old books, I hope you don't know it, uh, two films which I like very much, and I think have the same message. Did you see Neil Jordan's The Crying Game? and uh, David Cronenberg's uh, M. Butterfly. It's basically, with all the differences, the same story. Uh, a man gets passionately in love with a person who appears to be a fatal, beautiful woman, and when they are on the edge of consummating their affair of doing it, and the person pulls down, uh, whatever, raises the skirt, pulls down the dress, you see a penis. She was, is a man. 
Why? And, and then, of course, it's horror and so on. But the reason uh, I first like this scene is that it's a wonderful, ironic reversal of the primordial scene according to Freud of fetishism. You know, Freud's simple theory is that the origin of fetishism is this scene when you see a lady naked and she doesn't have a penis, no, and then fetish is the object you've seen just a little bit before to postpone, to cover that leg. Here the problem is not she doesn't have it, but she does have it, you know. So why, now, why I'm mentioning these two films, to make Lacanian points? Some gay theorists, and I don't agree with them here, they claimed that the message, that these films are too much a compromise, that instead of openly admitting the guy, the lover, who had this bad surprise, was gay. And he just didn't, was not ready to admit it to himself. That they play all this game at horror and so on and so on. I think, although this reading appears to be pro-gay, it's way too simplistic. I think a much better reading would be that. No, the love here is an authentic heterosexual love. But, and Lacan says this somewhere, the mystery, what makes this scene so shocking, is not, oh, I am really a gay. No, I am a heterosexual, but I discovered that the structure of heterosexual love is homosexual in the sense that the ultimate male dream is that the beautiful woman is really a man dressed up as a woman. That is the ultimate heterosexual male fantasy. And Lacan always emphasizes this, that for the majority of men, our, of course, unconscious dream is this one. It's very difficult for us men, majority, to break out of this masturbatory sexuality where the real woman is just a phantasmatic it's just, uh, how should I put it, it's just an object, a, fant a prop to serve as a projecting screen for fantasy. How do most of us heterosexual men engage in sex? Let me return, I didn't want to lose time, to another scene from Brazil that I quoted many times. It's a genius of Terry Gillian. You remember when in this futuristic uh, uh, society they go out to a restaurant, a re group of rich people, and they order food. And you know what they get? It's beautiful. They get a plate on which there is just a kind of a dog shit, heap of some anonymous, like some kind of a porridge, although I love porridge, some kind of a porridge. And above this, it's a beautiful color image telling you what you are really eating, you know a juicy steak with this. So you eat shit, but there you see, and I find this a wonderful platonic metaphor of, you know, you just need some shit, some material support, but the fantasy image tells you what you are eating. That's how we men treat women. The real we, bad heterosexual men, in a standard heterosexual, it's a, we want woman, real woman body, just as that shit, so that we can have our image <laughs> of whatever it is. And it's, uh, uh, and Lacan has, which is why, for example, I'm sorry if I'm jumping and using some old stuff, which is why I claim Hitchcock's vertigo is a deeply 
feminist film. And the true love is the love of the poor Judy for Scotty. Scotty is an evil character if there ever was one, I claim. She's simply in love with a fantasy with a dead woman. And there is no, there is no love with him. It's a mortifying love. The only tragically loving person is Judy, but that's another story. So let's go back. Uh, what Lacan does is something beautiful here. He complicates the whole scene, pointing out how, uh, you know, uh, like I'll put it like this, and that's my message. It's not simply that we have sexual normativity, heterosexual, whatever, and then we have all those marginals who don't fit it, and as good liberals we should fight for the inclusion of all those marginals and so on. Of course we should to avoid a misunderstanding. But Lacan proposes something which at least to me appears much more radical. He proposes that there is something terribly wrong already with the norm itself. The norm itself is already perverted. You think you are a heterosexual man? No, no, your fantasy is I'm screwing a guy who is dressed up as a woman. So, uh, and that uh, all these eccentric positions, eccentric in the sense of not fitting the norm, are just symptoms, but not symptoms in the sense of secondary, symptoms in the sense of moments where the truth explodes, of what is wrong with the norm itself. And uh, to return back to my example, it's not just sexuality, it's also politics. You have, again, as Frank in his wonderful book developed, you have rebel as that excessive element which uh, there is no proper place for it uh, in, uh, in reality and so on and so on. And as Frank developed, I think it was in your book, I'm not sure, and everything's confused in my mind, is that uh, how uh, the, what Badiou refers to as post-philosophy, this post-Hegelian decay of philosophy, precisely this was the golden era of this wandering excess. Because it's in erotics, in politics, in economy. They had the same problem. We have a certain normative structure, but there is a remainder which cannot be covered by it. For example, in social structure, we have the people state organized, but there is rebel, something that doesn't fit into it. Then, even in politics, we have this big problem of representation, even in every democracy. Like, we have representative democracies, parliament, blah, blah, but can they really represent it all? And uh, you have the same problem in eroticism, free marriage, marriage, but can marriage cover the true love and so on and so on. So, uh, but uh, the basic rule, Lacanian reply to this, I think, is that, is to do what Lacan did with sexual difference and so on. Again, that it's not enough to say we have the hegemonic order and then we act, speak on behalf of all those wan uh, wandering excesses, how to integrate them. That's for me still a liberal perspective. And this got me into 
trouble once with Judith Butler, who doesn't want to be called liberal, but I told her that's still your problem. You know, you want to include into it all those. No, something more has to be done. We should see how, like to return to Frank's topic, pebble, rebel. The point is not to just to say, but there are people out, refugees, rebel, and we should include them in. No, we should ask what fundamental class antagonism difference is there in the very heart of society whose effects are rebel or insexuality. For Lacan, why do we have transgender people and so on? Because, as Lacan put it, in there is no sexual relationship. Sexuality in its core is already antagonistic. This is why I insist, although it's not a perfect parallel, of course, on this parallel class struggle, sexual struggle. Lacan's message, again, it's not that some of us can enjoy full sexuality, so-called straight, and then there are all those half-excluded and so on and so on. No, the crucial point is to locate a deadlock into the very center. And then, again, to see this, uh, to see this uh, wandering excesses, all that doesn't fit into it as a... Uh, or, but you, figure of wandering excess, nicely developed, is Le Sans Papier in France. Those immigrants whose status is not regulated, who are not included into... But again, it's not... Of course we should be doing it, but my point is, it's not enough to say, okay, all sans papier without official papers. You notice that we are again at a bureaucracy, who are not swallowed by our noble bureaucracy. Uh, and, ah, you know... What is, ah, the Swiss bureaucracy, don't underestimate it. Uh, 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 a friend who tried to become a Swiss citizen, I don't know if this still holds, told me that for years he was trying to get it, but you cannot ever get it. All that you do is you can enter some kind of a limbo. You get a document which asserts that you are seriously considered for the possibility to become a Swiss citizen. And this limbo is the, the utmost, uh, what you can get there. No, I mean, bureaucracy is for me the noblest thing there is. Kafka was right. Bureaucracy is now, in our godless times, is our only contact with the divine. A French lady friend, I'm sorry if you know the story, told me a wonderful story, how she was... Uh, she got a message from city authority, Hotel de Ville, that her personal ID, carte d'identité, was stolen and that she needs to report there to get a new one. Okay. She came, went there and said, sorry, it must be a misunderstanding. Look, I have a card. It wasn't stolen. It's still valid. Uh, <laughs> what a stupid lady. You know what was the answer she got? Officially, your card is stolen. So what you held in your hand now is an illegal document. So please tear it up and ask for a new one. <laughs> I mean, you don't get it out so easily. This is, this is theology, my God. This is how it all works, you know. Uh, uh, the problem is, again, an eternal process. This is the surplus enjoyment, you know. 
Whatever you do, and you must be active all the time. That's the basic bureaucratic rule. The problem should never be solved. Yes? What do you make of the surplus enjoyment of the left at the moment? There are. There are, and I don't want to get... I have enough trouble. You know who I mean now. Hey, things went wrong with me with, with Greece. Because I didn't support the left platform. No? And I still stand on that. I think that the choice between Syriza compromise, capitulation, and left platform, let's do Brexit, it's not the true choice. These are two options. Both of them, Varoufakis told me, I read in the newspaper, would be totally acceptable for, 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 for European bureaucracy. Varoufakis told me, when, I'm sorry if I repeat these stories, when he threatened to Schäuble, we will do Brexit. You know what was Schäuble's answer? Perfect. How much money do we want? 30 billion. We give it to you to do it. What Varoufakis tried, I'm not sure how serious this was in the sense of feasible. His idea was to unsettle the entire order, to stay within, but to do things euro and then through some bank, uh, bank, uh, bank uh, documents, some pseudo-euro and so on, to remain with, that's why Varoufakis was, you remember, Varoufakis had to step down and so on. Uh, he was the true threat. Okay, that was my first problem. The second problem was refugees. Where again, I cannot repeat more, I'm totally for refugees. I just think that this, uh, this utter moralization and so on, and uh, uh, is, uh, Horrible. The price will be the way Europe is turning now. This, you know, more and more anti-immigrant racism and so on. When things will get even worse, will then all those pro-refugee pathetic hypocrites will they be ready to admit that they are co-responsible for this crisis? There was second. Then the other problem was this LGBT and so on. No. I mean, I have many problems, and so I will give you an example. I have it for surplus enjoyment. Uh, 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 for example, uh, there is, in parts of some left liberal, pathetic, pro-refugee guys, I think this is a clear example of, uh, of, of surplus enjoyment, how... You know, you have this endless self-laceration. Europe is entering a new... A new, a new barbarian age. Are we still human? Did we lose our humanity? How can this be going on? And so on and so on. Uh, uh, my problem is that in this way, what you gain is a kind of a, it's a clear radical pleasure in this beautiful soul moral authority that you, instead of solving problems, for example, my God, I much, Angela Merkel, I don't idealize her. But half a year ago, she made a very reasonable proposal. Remember, she said, why don't we simply accept as a rule that 20% of the EU budget, and we are talking about immense billions, goes for the refugees. You know, like many people are ready to open their hearts to the refugees, not to have to open their purses. How should I put it, no? I'm for... What... 
Where are all those humanitarians now? It's a mega tragedy in the making. Aleppo, a two million city, and at least when Sarajevo was under siege, there was a little bit of a movement. Where is the mega movement now? Now and so on. You know, my problem is this one, that when somebody elevates the other refugees into kind of ideal, poor, and so on, I always smell racism behind it. I mean, I got this lesson through many contacts with, uh, for example, in Canada. Canada is now my new evil country. I love it. <laughs> you know, Canada likes to boast that it's a higher synthesis of United States and, Amer and Europe. American efficiency, but European tolerance. Beer. Are you crazy? Did you read from time to time you get some notes, but small notes in newspapers? You know how horrible is the situation of whatever you call them, Inuits, native first Americans in Canada. It's a nightmare. They're in a total psychic breakdown. There is, I will quote it in my next book, there is some city of 2,000 people in the cold area north, way north from Toronto, and they are totally at a loss. Um, a couple of months ago, I'm talking about a city of 2,000. They had over 50 suicides. People are just getting drunk, killing themselves, and so on. Or, do you know that claiming that uh, families are drug addicted, alcoholic, uh, years ago still, probably even now, and these are official documents, not some left lunatics, but official, 80% of the people of Inuits and natives are taken and putting into state institutions, boarding schools. Okay, what's the problem? The problem is that I'm quoting official statistics. You know how many of them are sexually abused in those boarding schools? 80%, not one, eight, eight zero. I mean, you know, we have so many, it's so select, and this I find a little bit hypocritical. Like, such a tragedy, mega tragedy is going on there. And now we have Happy Canada with Justin Trudeau. Of course, he did some good things, but mainly cosmetic, you know. Uh, okay, but, so again, to go back to that, the way these moralistic leftists, they simply enjoy spreading bad news instead of pragmatically focusing on how to solve problems, because, uh, you know, this is for me part of the surplus enjoyment of the left, which I already detected years ago when I noticed that the best left theory is always a very convincing explanation after the revolution fails of why it has to fail, you know. When things go wrong, the leftists write a wonderful book up from Trotsky, why, you know, this sense of morals, for example, today, when it's fashionable, I don't like Germans too much, all of them, but this horrible thing, how Germany is now making compromises, horrible, Pegida, they are slowly closing the borders, okay, but fuck you, they were by far the best, the miracle, what did others do? I mean, you focus on the only guy in Europe who behaved half-decently with refugees. And nobody talks about, you want to see true horror, go to my country. Uh, go to all these Slavic post-communist countries 
up they're not Slavic, Lithuania and so on. I read somewhere in official media, but it's just a small note, talking about racism. You know, now to protect them from Putin, there are a couple of American battalions in Lithuania or Latvia, in one of the two. You know that their government officially protested to NATO, claiming that there are some black soldiers there, and this causes unease among the population. So if they can send units without uh, black people and so on. And uh, my own country, Slovenia, I cannot believe my ears what is happening. Recently I've read in the main Slovene right-wing, very popular weekly magazine, a guy, it's such a crazy conspiracy theory that I almost like it. It's almost subversive. It's a brutal attack on George Soros, claiming that he is the most dangerous and evil guy today in the world. Why? Because he is organizing the, European, uh, the invasion of Europe by Negroid Islamic hordes. That's the term he uses. And... Uh, and he says that this is done by Soros, as he calls him, a Talmudo Zionist. So I like this theory because it says that, you know, we live under a wrong impression that there is some kind of a conflict in the Middle East between the Jews and the radical Muslims. No, no, he has a theory. Behind Muslim migrants and radicalism, it's all really Jewish plot, you know. I mean, it's, and you know what shocked me? It appeared in a big media and people laughed a little bit, they just, uh, like, what worries me is this lethargy where the only thing you actually do is this morally satisfying uh, complaining, you know, horrible, did you see what they are doing, horrible, did you see what they are doing, and so on, this moralistic leftist, I mean, typical leftist meeting in Europe today is, oh, it's horrible, our countries are getting fascist, did you see what they are doing, what they are doing, I mean, this is for me a clear case of total lethargy, the, the care is just to safeguard your, 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 moral, uh, your moral superiority. I'm here for, uh, uh, like, uh, what I, would I have done in Germany? First, I would have mobilized much more. Maybe they are doing it, they don't. But the first thing to ask is, where is the self-organization, maybe you know more, among the refugee immigrants themselves? To mobilize them, to bring them daily, and also to embarrass them, not just to treat, like, uh, when there is some event like whatever, some woman is raped by immigrants, bring them in, debate it, what do they say about it, and so on and so on. I mean, uh, instead of this... Uh, what the left, what is the left is often doing is this fake under, yes, they were starved, they were terrorized, it's all an effect of colonialism, we should understand it, and so on and so on. I mean, I'm horrified by it, and I, I, and believe me, when I meet real immigrants, okay, now you will say we know why, yes, because I apply my creative Marxist methods, and I go immediately into dirty jokes, you know, and uh, it works wonderfully, you know, we are immediately friends and so on. Sorry, any other?
my god, fuck it, time is running. Okay, al- allow me, allow me another detour, because let me nonetheless go on, just please, uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit with this. So, you know, if we are, now I will nonetheless make another LGBT point, maybe problematic to some of you. So, also LGBT, I think that trans people are the purest symptom, but again, for me, you know, symptom in the Lacanian sense. Symptom does not mean just an after effect, secondary. Symptom is the point where the truth of a field explodes. Uh, LGBT, or trans, whatever you call them, people, embody the fact that what Lacan would have called it in a pater rapport sexuel. There is no sexual relationship. Which is why I simply don't get it when some people who attacked me now in the United States, they claim that I'm caught in gender binary. But no, for me, the point of Lacan's, there is no sexual relationship. It's that precisely any gender binary always fails. That sexuality, our sexuality as such is a priori thwarted by an impossibility and so on. And my only reproach to some, not all, with many of them we are now doing books together. Miracles will happen. Because some people were horrified. My God, what for an idiot would do a book on LGBT with me, you know? <laughs> it is this, I am suspicious of this obsession with ultra-categorization. It is as if it's also a way to avoid the basic deadlock. For example, you know what happened recently? It's wonderful reading. It's that uh, uh, some, uh, some, I don't know, of the city of New York, and didn't they establish a list of, and I have it, I don't have it just here, of uh, 31 uh, sex identities. You have gender, queer, uh, man to woman, woman to man, whatever. Okay, I give them the full right for this. Be called what you want. It's the basic right. Although even here I would have put a limit, but not in this case. You know, because their basic argument of LGBT people who advocate if I'm neither he or she, we should invent another third person pronoun singular. My problem is this one, that, uh, that uh, uh, it is as if with another more exhaustive classification, you will finally find your proper place. I know that the last time I was here, when half a year ago, I had a debate here with, with Jackie Rose, whose solution is let's simply split personal identity problem and law legislation, no? But I think that when you get 31 identities, uh, it's get in this sense problematic that it's as if, again, with this overclassification, finally, each of us, no matter how trans you are, if you don't fit into he or she, you will find a proper place. No, you will not. Sexuality is constituted by antagonism. And I think the greatness of LGBT people is that precisely they experience this antagonism in the heart of in the heart of 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 sexuality at its purest. That's why I also, if we talk about antagonism, 
Uh, yes, I said that I don't believe that that everyone should have the right to be called, addressed as what they want. Of course, in the case of LGBT, I agree with it. But as an abstract principle, this doesn't hold. No, I think that, no, the usual, I think that the legitimization that the LGBT people use is too abstract. I give them the right, okay, who am I even to give them? I automatically accept their right to be called he, she, it, they, whatever you want. I'm just saying that this is not a universal principle. Why not? Because uh, uh, there are, uh, the principle that I don't agree with is that if some designation hurts you or humiliates you, then you have the right to be called differently. Now you will say, isn't this self-evident? No, it's not. If we have a war criminal or a brutal capitalist speculator who wants to be called humanitarian, no, I think he should be called criminal. And the whole point is that it should hurt him and so on. So you know what I mean? I don't accept this. It's a very specific case, sexual identity. Otherwise, I don't agree with it. But now comes the evil part. But I love it. You know, all these 31 uh, sexual positions, it works in the case of sexuality, where we are sexed beings, the core of your identity is at stake. But, and you know that, now I got the story from my friends. That's why I was warning about guys like uh, the, the Facebook guy, Mark Zuckerberg or Tim Cook and so on. They are so... It's, I, my paranoia was right, why they are so fanatically for LGBT. One of them, I get an interview, I will quote it, I got it, said, but isn't it the same with class difference? We should also exit from class binary. And one of them said, look, it's unfair to say I'm a capitalist. I help workers, I want a special category and so on. So I took the class and uh, composed my list. Why class binary? Why not uh, uh, by class? A proletarian sub-employing and exploiting other proletarians. Then masturbatory cross-class. A small company self-employed owner exploiting himself. Class queen. A motherly capitalist who takes care of her workers but tolerates no trade unions. PTC, proletarian to capitalist. CTP, capitalist to proletarian. Class bender, pan-class, non-class, trans-class, third-class, class fluid, non-binary trans-class, person of trans-class experience. Then my favorite, because one of the genders in New York is also two-spirit. But this is perfect. Aren't people like Bill Gates and George Soros two-spirit capitalists? One spirit, ruthless manipulator, the other spirit, generous humanitarian, and so on. Then you have precarious proletarian, digital capitalist, then CEC Butch, a capitalist brutally exploiting another capitalist. And, and my reaction to this is from the great British proletarian opera, you know, Gilbert and Sullivan, Mikado, you know, they are all on the list and none of them will be missed, <laughs> you know. 
no, but you see, you see my point here that uh, you should. This is for me. Of course, I am all for it, renaming and so no. But just be careful and always ask the brutal Leninist question: How does renaming effectively function? And another thing that you should. Time is running. Okay, I will. I really want uh, so many more things to say that I want to go into another thing. Yes, the name Lacan's name for this uh, sexual uh, impossibility at the core of sexuality is sexual difference. Sexual difference for Lacan is not men and women, but it's some, as it were, self difference, inner obstacle, self impediment which ruins everything. So here, people who attacked me on LGBT made a reproach to me and then to Lacan, with which I don't agree. One was, and I don't have, sorry, the names here, two criticisms which appear to me quite crazy. At least the second one. The one was that, and it sounds almost convincing, that sexual difference is Lacan's fundamental fantasy. This is a theory popular in some circles that Lacan remained too phallogocentric and they, the Lacan they like is the Lacan of precisely of the circles, of objectita. And they, of course, quote as their sacred passage from Lacan when Lacan says that object small a, this surplus enjoyment, is asexual. But the way they read it is simply that there is some almost Deleuzean uh, 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 multitude plurality of partial drives, whatever, and that sexual difference is edipalization, comes otherwise as a kind of fundamental fantasy constraint onto it. Uh, here, uh, if you are a Lacanian, you get into your own bureaucratic theology and get it first. Lacan doesn't write, doesn't say that object A is asexual, but that it is A, but right in cursive, like object A, asexual. What he means is sexual in the mode of object small a, which doesn't mean simply beyond sexual difference, but filling in the gap of the impossibility of sexual difference. So sexual difference, but again, not in the sense of men, women but in the sense in which, where does we, when we are men, women, we obfuscate sexual difference. If you have an authentic, on the edge, transgender person, sexual difference exists there, as such embodied in one person. And so this is the first part. Uh, the second, some of those advocates, there was, you can check it up in Philosophical Salon, where there were attacks on me, Recently, there is a text against me that I love. The reproach is this one, that I don't see that sexual difference is not only a part of basic patriarchal structure, gender, which gets used for colonization and so on, but that sexual difference is... It's a pretty radical position, I almost like it. Sexual difference is a notion which only functions 
which is an effect on of of uh, slavery and domination. So that sexual difference is the discourse of domination and servitude and slavery transposed into it. Well, my answer here is, and my reply here is a very simple one. I can get the point. The whole argument is that uh, some colonizers, when they despised in racist terms other aboriginal people, they sometimes claim, you see, their identity is mixed. They don't only, they don't even have clear sexual roles and so on and so on. But on the other hand, I'm here pro, again, my horror, pro Eurocentric modernist. I claim that isn't, show me one, maybe they are, it's not a rhetorical question. Show me one traditional culture which is not based on some kind of a sexualized, precisely in the sense of uh, gender binary cosmology, male principle, female principle, and so on and so on. I think that the experience of, and now you will say, but you have androgynous and so on. Yes, but these are also supplements to this basic ontological tension, yin, yang, masculine, feminine, light, darkness, and so on and so on. The greatness of modernity is precisely as first feminist partisans of uh, Descartes wrote somewhere, we like Descartes because Cogito, Cogito doesn't have a sex. I mean, uh, uh, so I find it very funny when partisans of, uh, of trans Genderism against, by, uh, against gender binary attack me of Eurocentrism. Are they aware that in what they advocate as transgenderism or transgender position uh, is strictly a European phenomenon, part of our culture, which Absolutely, you cannot translate it. Of course, every civilization has those marginal, androgynous, and so on and so on. But it's not the same. Okay, uh, that's what I... And then, uh, so, again... Uh, okay, I will not go into this. I will just, to amuse you a little bit, uh, uh, conclude with something to announce what I will be doing tomorrow. So, the main result... And I don't have time to develop it now. I already finished a new book now, Void and Its Access, where I go into it, namely into how it's not enough to do this poetry of postmodern, but you would have put it, uh, 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 anti-philosophical idea of philosophy always failed at a certain point, there is an excess and so on. No, there are excesses symptoms because there is no base, because... The base, the thing itself, is cut fundamentally by certain impossibility and so on. And I will just maybe give a hint at where I will move tomorrow, referring to Alenka Zupancic's new book. I had the honor of reading the manuscript. I will try to show how Lacan, out of these considerations, proposes a uniquely beautiful theory of analytic act of analytic interpretation, which is not just integrate the excess or plurality in joyfully, but to, uh, put it? to provide, invent a new signifier, a new name, 
which and uh, Alenka Zupanchus gives some wonderful examples from jokes and I will I will give okay I will just tell you one joke which I already and then I will finish which I already used in my books and I will try then to read as an analytic intervention you must remember I used this joke years ago already it's a joke that you find with many in many countries a joke against politicians my version is from Croatia in the 90s when they have that authoritarian right wing president Franjo Tudjman the the joke is that he is flying on a plane with his big family above Croatia and one person his wife tells him Franjo why don't you throw out a check for 1 million euros and to make a Croat happy, one Croat. Then another guy tells him, why don't you throw out two checks for half a million and make two Croats happy and so on and so on. At the end, his grandson, a person of childish innocence says, but grandpa, why don't you uh, throw out of the plane yourself and make all the Croats <laughs> happy, you know. <laughs> this is, you see, this is something like a psychoanalytic intervention almost. And I spoke with a psychoanalyst who told me I can almost imagine this as an intervention. Let's invent a similar case. I know people like this. It's me, obviously, but my mother was a, a bad case here. People who like to sacrifice themselves, not themselves, but sacrifice things. No, people who always want to help. Don't you need help? Can I do this for you? Can I do that, that for you? And so on. So, uh, like, my mother was a clear case of this. She was always asking me, should I go to a store for you? Should I do this? Should I do that? No? And of course, when I said, please stop, I don't want anything from you, she broke down crying, you know, like, oh my God, what should I then do with myself? And so on. Huh? And uh, so uh, the point is this one, that when you have this, a guy who is just has this eternal tendency to sacrifice things for others. Like, I will do this, take you to lunch to make you happy, do this for you, keep, uh, uh, I will keep your children in the afternoon, whatever, doing favors. Well, the analytic answer would have been, of course, something like, why don't you sacrifice yourself and make all of us happy? But not in the sense of killing yourself, but literally, sacrifice yourself. Sacrifice, get rid of the structure of your self-ego, which pushes you into this direction all the time. But now you will say, but what is so bad about this, doing good things to others? I can tell you from my own examples, there is always a dirty economy behind it. Now I'll make a half a confession, you might... I know whenever I like to help other people, and even in such a way that they think that I'm against them, that they don't notice it. You think I'm a good guy, ho <laughs> ho. I looked into myself and discovered what's my secret dream. It's that I will be doing this and you will not even notice it. You will maybe even mock me, attack me. And then at a certain point, you will notice this, how good I was. And you will be so embarrassed and you will want to apologize and I will feel so good. You see how disgusting it is. I'm doing all this just to create that 
skin of you will feel bad and I will be wounded and I will feel so good that you feel bad and so on. So uh, I will try again to the... Because you know why? Because this is what Lacan means by at the end of the analysis a new signifier should be produced. It's a much more complex notion. I will develop this tomorrow and a little bit more. I dropped it out. I talked too much into theory, philosophy, but then we will have Genosse Frank Ruda, Comrade Ruda, and now 10 minutes for democracy, <laughs> if you want it. I mean, yeah. Okay. I can who wants to comment or question, just indicate other Please. Yes, I, I, I couldn't help noticing how, uh, how uh, much of a stance you had against the identity politics of the... Uh... No, I'm fine. I've got a loud enough voice than this. Now, take, take the mic, because then maybe people yeah, at the back yeah, yeah. Yeah. and for the recording too. Hello, I'm... Yeah. Oh, God, I hate this. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't help notice, but... Uh, look at the, uh, the parallels you have with uh, the anti-identitarian left. For example, the, the uh, I go on a board uh, called Lefty Poll. It's uh, uh, it's full of anti-identitarians who criticise both the identity politics of the right, especially those on Poll, and the, that are, which is on the left, such as those you might find on Tumblr. And I've been and I was thinking, the whole uh, thing about class not being a struggle. It's it's um, why do people make these things identities when sometimes they can be concrete facts, such as in the Marxist view or even in the Lacanian view? Why do they make them identities? Uh, give me an example. I'm sorry. So sincerely, I don't get clearly what are you aiming at. Are you talking now which identity are you mentioning? Sexual identity or more class identity? Well, the, the process of creating the identities... For example, I saw a uh, there was a, a funny meme where there was uh, some person where there was someone on Twitter saying uh, <clears throat> explaining uh, and defining it as when a rich person explains something to to a poor person and <laughs> followed by a funny caption of saying class wars over guys. <laughs> it's uh, I, I why do these why are things turned into identities and why why do we get this identitarian and thus the moralistic set, the sentiment that comes out of this identity politics. Uh, okay, I will now ask you a rough question because I'm not sure, like, where do you stand here? Do I am, I'm the anti-identitarian, a very staunch Marxist. Ah, perfect, then we agree because you know what's for me the basic problem? <laughs> identity politics is for me the politics of coexistence. The, the goal is not to destroy the other, but can't we all live together with our identities recognized? And of course, at a certain level, this holds, like, but uh, not at the basic class level. There, I'm sorry, class struggle does not mean we should get over it and have some identity politics where proletarians can be fully proletarian and bourgeois, fully bourgeois and whatever. No, it's... Uh, it's, uh, it's a totally different type of antagonism. It's a radical antagonism. And my problem with identity politics is that this type of antagonism disappears or is even translated into antagonism. For example, 
in United States, I noticed how class issues tend to be retranslated into identity issues. For example, the usual, when they speak about Mexicans, if you listen to many academic texts, it's almost as if uh, it's not economic struggle, but what appears as economic struggle is our, is, our, is our intolerance of the Mexicans. And then you even go a step further into some pseudo-Freudianism and says, we project our fears onto Mexicans, but what are these fears? We should look deeper into ourselves and uh, locate it and so on and so on. Uh, so again, my reproach against identity politics is First, I'm an old, old-fashioned universalist. I think a priori, that's my sensitivity with that LGBT point, we don't want to be hurt. Well, sometimes you have to be hurt. For example, I'm not uh, changing the topic, I, another point I wanted to develop. One way I was attacked when I was in Ramallah, I think I did a very proper anti-Muslim anti point, I said we should attack, of course, the uh, honor killings and so on, but I just listed a series of other examples from Canada to Mexico to my own country where also horrible things are happening to women, to minorities, no? And I just say that uh, we have to fair and locate all the, these horrors and uh, you know what reply I got, a pretty horrifying reply for me, it was that while apparently I was criticizing violence against women, children, and so on, by talking about it, I was reproducing it verbally. <laughs> I totally oppose it, you know, for what reason? It's an old humanist saying by Edward Bond. It's a little bit too naive, but I agree with it. He said somewhere that if you don't want to confront, uh, uh, confront Hiroshima in theater, openly you will probably confront it in reality again. That is to say, I think that to that, uh, 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 how put it, uh, things like rape and horrors and torture, whatever, we have to confront them in a brutal way. We must be hurt, these are horrible things. Otherwise, we will follow that way to which I often uh, uh, refer, yes, immediately, mockingly. You know, now that, as we learn from Americans, torture is called enhanced interrogation technique. So I ironically proposed once, why don't we call rape enhanced uh, seduction technique or whatever, you know, like all the horror disappears. No, you must, be. that's why I'm totally opposed. Of course, within certain limits, I know what means to be really terrifying and so on, but uh, hurt, but to this trigger warning system now in a, I mean, sorry, university is not an isolated place where you are safe. University should precisely expose us to the brutality of life. Of course, not at the level of being really raped, but to confront the horror, only this works. And that's for me, the fear of all these trigger warnings, people must, no, people must not feel safe. People must be safe. And the worst thing is that to make you feel safe while you are not really safe. So, you see, uh, my problem with, again, my problem with identity politics is that it simply 
For example, the moment with LGBT, the moment I just said that, I'm not saying this devalues LGBT, but the fact that all the big business is emphatically supporting it, it says something. We should at least ask, is then this a totally neutral field? Can we somehow combine LGBT with other struggles? How? I was instantly attacked for class essentialism. Class in this identity politics, class essentialism is a label which you get if you just mention class in any way. I know when they say there are multiple struggles, class, race, sex, class never really occurs there. And uh, things get especially problematic, as it often happens, when the very progressive identity politics gets caught into, gets a very weird class connotation. How often I encountered in the United States that beneath the critique of male chauvinism and so on, anti-feminism, it was really upper middle class white academics silently targeting allegedly primitive Mexican workers who don't read their... Well, you know, I, I simply think, of course, it's not the simple old bourgeois proletarian, but something that we should still call class struggle antagonism is going on getting stronger and stronger. And my source would be here like somebody whom you really cannot accuse to be a leftist, Peter Sloterdijk. He wrote a book on, I quote it often, on capitalism as a cupola, where he in a wonderful develops how this logic Hollywood, you know, if you are disoriented, look at the good Hollywood blockbuster. <laughs> like, like uh, although they're very problematic films, but like, like, uh, like uh, Hunger Games, Elysium. We are moving towards this 20% people live in a cupola protected, majority is out and so on, and this tension I reject to claim that this basic tension is simply one on, at the same level with others. This is the radical tension that still defines us. But I talk too much, there was the gentleman there, there was a lady there. You mentioned uh, your next book, which will be called Void that Produces it, Void and its Excess. Void and its excess. That's the working title, yes. So my question is, is the gap between psychoanalysis and philosophy that you've alluded to today, and we will be alluding to, is that the same as the void that produces the excess? No, no, I don't see an immediate connection. You know why I mentioned this gap, why I gave the title? Because now we, by the term we, I mean my gang of people the so-called Slovene-Lacanians, but also our comrades, like we are claiming maybe we should proclaim you, Frank, an honorary Slovenian. <laughs> but that, that now there is tremendous attack on us, not only by idiots like that, your greatest scrotum philosopher, Roger Scruton, <laughs> but also by some Lacanian psychoanalysts, like I heard from friends that Jacqueline Miller had a tremendous outburst against me in the United States, claiming we do politics, philosophy, it's not the real of psychoanalysis and so on. Well, my answer is this one. First, Miller himself is doing quite a lot of politics lately, like he's in the, in the committee to re-elect Sarkozy and so on. Also. 
let's drop it, who is doing it? But, but the basic point is this one. The mystery is this one. And this is the big problem for all those who want to dissociate Lacan from philosophy. It's almost impossible. Lacan's fundamental references were always, always philosophers. Name it. Uh, uh, Pre-Socratics. Lacan has a wonderful reading of then in Democritus. Socrates, the basic figure of Transfiras. Plato, Parmenides, Aristotle, Stoics, Object A, uh, 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 Aquinas. Just name it. And uh, the ridiculous answer I get is that Lacan was precisely fighting philosophy. Like try, but I think Lacan is doing some subversion of philosophy which is strictly immanent to philosophy. If you take from Lacan the reference of philosophy, you simply get another medical treatment science. There, it, the, the greatness of Lacan is that he saw that <coughs> psychoanalysis as a theory has radical philosophical consequences. It ruins traditional ontology and so on and so on, which is why Lacan is very precise in his Kant with Saab. At the beginning, when he asks where in the history of ideas does the movement which began, which, which culminates in Freud, where does it begin? He says, Kant. And uh, also, I have a problem with this, but Lacan was an anti-philosopher. But listen, all philosophers from Kant onwards were anti-philosophers, in the sense of none of them wanted to be called a philosopher. Kant says, prolegomena, not yet philosophy, preparation. Fichte said, Wissenschaftslehre. So is, is there a gap? Would you agree? So yeah, but it's a gap. In there is a gap. Uh, but in, you know in what sense? In the gap in the sense that philosophy is in itself decentered. And psychoanalysis brings us to the very fundamental gesture of philosophy, which is ignored by most of the philosophers themselves. So uh, uh, what psychoanalysis does is to undermine philosophy for me from within... Uh, targeting the very core of philosophy. Psychoanalysis is, in a way, more philosophical than philosophy. It brings out what, and this happens with Kant and so on, so, you know what, so that we don't lose time now, why don't I begin with this tomorrow, I promise you, because I have the entire lab, because then we go to Kant, Hegel, and so on. Okay, the lady with spectacles, I wanted to bring you together. You have a beard, you have spectacles, together you are Groucho Marx. You know that, you know that image that is in Alenka Zupanchi's book, the spe uh, uh, spectacles and the, sorry, tasteless, please. Yeah, okay. um, just really quick, um, looking at the difference between class antagonism and sexual antagonism. So we have class antagonism as historicizable and therefore it can be overthrown, but um, is the structure of sexual difference eternal? I mean, Lacan uses the Matthews and um, these kind of ways of approaching the universe. It's a very nice question, and uh, because this is usually, and I claim it has some strength, the argument, the Judith Butler argument, that we, by we she means especially John Kopjack and me and now Alenka Zupantrich, all of us who refer to Lacan, that we are closet Kantians that we propose a certain a priori formal structure which then can be actualized in different forms and so on. Well, uh, 
it's a complex answer, but my basic answer would have been, no, it's not eternal. That precisely, and I also wanted to talk about this on Wednesday, what is going on today with the prospect of, 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 uh, of what we usually call, but I don't think it's just a journalistic invention, this uh, uh, homo deus, post-humanity, and so on, there is a serious prospect today, if you imagine human beings, on the one hand, totally embedded in cyberspace, uh, totally controlled through biogenetics, and so on, and, and no longer sexual sex, no longer necessary for reproduction, insemination, it's obvious that it's uh, quite feasible that we will enter the post-sexual era. As a philosoph philosophers, we just have to raise the difficult question of what do we gain, what do we lose? I try to avoid both extremes here. One extreme would be to claim in this technocratic way, you know, no, sorry, critical way, oh, it's the end of humanity, we will become machines and so on. The other way would be to say this, I hate them, this Ray Kurzweil style of, you know, no, it will be happy singularity, will we be godlike and so on. It's, it's a very difficult question because let's say there are two prospects, that we will become godlike and that we will become just machines. Uh, I mean, elements. And my answer is here, Stalin's answer from a, I'm sorry if I repeat old jokes, it's one of my favorite Stalinist jokes, anti, from a, there is a wonderful joke about Stalin from Soviet era where, I'm sorry if you know it, they debate in 33-4 in Politburo the question, will there be money in communism or not? First, right-wingers, Bukharian people say, of course there will be money is natural, how otherwise do you exchange products? Then leftists, some old Trotskyists claim, no, money is alienation, blah, blah, there will be no money. Ah, Comrade Stalin intervenes and he says, no, this is just right-wing and left-wing revisionism. The truth is dialectical synthesis. There will be money and there will not be money. And they ask him, how do you mean this, Comrade Stalin? You know what he says, you can guess. Some people will have money, <laughs> will not have money. So I will say, will there be humanity or not? Well, some people will have all the power, other people will not. And here, I think that, and I agree here with Badiou, he developed this, that now, the horror is that through this latest digital control and uh, biogenetic manipulations, that class divisions will get more and more translated into direct biological divisions. So that's one prospect. And it's not as futuristic. Usually people say, but forget about it. We still have... Our... No, it's already the present. It's already the present. Second... Uh, problem that I see, you know, don't underestimate sexuality. Are we aware to what extent, and I will also try to develop this tomorrow or the day after, uh, our sexuality is rooted into some kind of a desire for knowledge. Sexuality is by definition already with small children, who knows what is happening, how, so uh, how fundamentally what remains of a human being if you take away sexuality? I claim in some sense subjectivity is over and so on. So things are so open, 
thing. Uh, but my ultimate reproach to Judith Butler, who made this reproach about non-historicity, is that, uh, look, I developed this in our triple orgy book, uh, Ernesto Laclausi and me. Uh, you know what I don't get? She has a certain image, uh, sorry, image of how sexuality is, let's call it her, I don't want to be unjust, this performative uh, construction theory. Gender is not naturally fixed, this playful, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Then uh, she tells a certain pretty linear story, no? Like, in the old times there was essentialism, it gets gradually undermined, Freud a little bit Lacan. Now we know sex is contingent. Okay. Once I asked her a simple question. Her theory of sexuality, constructed through this contingent performativity and so on, is this an eternal theory? Or is this a specific theory of what goes on today? In other words, where already, I was intentionally evil, where already cavemen discursively reconstructing their <laughs> sexual identities or not? And she replied very aggressively that, that this is a totally wrong question, we shouldn't ask it, Foucault rejected this kind of questions, you know. But for me, this is the fundamental question. I claim that what, uh, it's very ambiguous, because again, on the one hand, she tells a very standard liberal story of historical progress. The zero level are stupid essentialists who think sex is unnatural, then it gets better and better and better, at the end, ooh, now we know it's contingent. Okay, what is the historical status of this very scheme? The standard pseudo-Hegelian answer would have been both at the same time. It was always true, but it is visible only today. The same thing as Marx says, you remember, about universal notion of uh, work, labor. That universal labor was all the time here, but only in capitalism, where effectively our labor field becomes contingent, universal labor is part of our experience. I just wonder, and I am, it's nice that you raised that question, because in my new book I will be very critical about it. Namely, there are obviously limits to this parallel, you know, sexual antagonism, class antagonism, because I don't want, I want precisely to avoid this meaningless alternative that either they are both eternal and then we get into some of a bad caricature of Mao where the struggle is eternal, also class struggle, or the opposite, the happy post-class post, uh, but also post-sexual society which was, as you maybe know, I've written about it, a serious option in Soviet Union in the 20s. You have a whole strand of these communist gnostics, even Trotsky was close to them. They claimed that sexuality is the last resistance of the bourgeoisie, and we should create a new man, which will be distance, no longer prone to emotions, free of sexual pleasures, and so on. It was an extremely strong tendency. Lenin was wise enough to oppose it, but even Trotsky somewhere, were, and that's why Stalin triumphed, I claim, paradoxically. Because people, to ordinary people, were totally confused by all this constructivist biological talk about new post-human men already there. And Stalin did something very efficient but obscene. He said, no, language, 
family, sexual, all this remains, it's eternal, and so on and so on, you know. It's, okay, we stop, we go on tomorrow, tomorrow, I promise you, and to, again, tomorrow we do more philosophy, all this philosophy, blah, blah, and Frank Ruda teaches us that we have no freedom, and so on, I hope. Thanks. More bullshit tomorrow, yeah? Sorry, more bullshit. More bullshit. More bullshit, more bullshit. More bullshit. More bullshit tomorrow, yeah.